0: To whom or to what organization are you indispensable? Not indefensible, indispensable. That means you, they got to have you. You are absolutely necessary to a particular people or group, your company. To whom or to what are you indispensable? It feels good to be needed, doesn't it? I am indispensable to my family. Do you know how I know that? because I know by heart the Wi-Fi password. (laughs) I never changed it from the 13 alphanumeric code from the beginning. I have it memorized. It's locked in. And I don't think anybody else knows it. They need me. And my son has been working on it. (laughs) So when he gets it, I'll have to change it. So I continue (laughs) to be indispensable to them. Maybe you feel that way about your business or your company, there's some organization, there's some group of people to whom you are indispensable. And it can be a good thing to strategize, how can I be needed in this organization? How, how can I develop the, the skills necessary to really be of value to this particular group or people? And yet, sometimes we can go too far with this where we begin to think that we are really special, that we are really needed. And we can even apply this to our understanding of who God is. That God really needs us to push forward His plan for some particular need in our lives that God really needs us. Well, to this, A.W. Tozer, uh, writer and Christian, writes these words in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Almighty God, just because He is almighty... Needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet, if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. Twentieth century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable. To believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being. Nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination. Not by our desert, that is, our deserving it. Nor by divine necessity. In other words, God doesn't need me. God doesn't need us or anything He has created in this world. And in our text this morning, in this sermon of Paul, this is what we see. That the only truly indispensable being, the only truly independent being is God Himself. And what we ultimately need is not to be indispensable, but to find everything we need ultimately, in Him. To find our joy, to find our hope, to find our fulfillment in God. So, the way we'll, we'll, I'll go through this sermon is that first I'll walk through our passage explaining its meaning, giving its sense, and then I want to circle back around to particularly verses 24 and 25 and draw out and meditate on, think on this particular attribute of God, God's absolute independence, his self-sufficiency, the technical jargon for it would be his aseity and why it matters, what it is, why, why the so what of it. Why does it matter? We're beginning this new year of sermons uh, with considering the attributes of God. That means the, the character traits, who he is. Uh, we'll just do that in the first three Sundays of this year. And the reason why is that we, one of the reasons we exist is to love God's glory. And that means discovering who He is, growing in our discovery and understanding of who God is, and then delighting in who He is. So that's my hope for these three sermons. Not that we don't do that in other parts as we walk through particular books of the Bible. And yet, in, in these three sermons, we'll be, be giving particular focus to certain attributes or features of God's essence, of who He is. So look at our text in Acts 17, 22 to 31 We'll just walk through, kind of verse by verse, this passage. Notice in verse 22, Paul speaks about what he observes. And he's honest, he's not flattering the people. They are religious, as is evidenced by their many shrines, their many idols and objects of worship and he also noticed that they were an inclusive people see that in verse 23 they included an altar with an inscription to a god they didn't know to the unknown god and since it's clear to paul that these people did not know christ the god of the old testament the one true god he uses this opportunity to preach to them about this god This unknown God, he says, is the creator of all things. He's he's altogether different than these other idols, these so-called gods that you have here before you. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore, he does not live in temples made by humans. In other words, he is above and beyond being able to be contained in such a structure. Now, it's not, don't, don't, Mix it up. It's not that he's so physically big that he can't fit into a house made by human hands. It's that that's incomprehensible. It's a a totally different category. God is beyond, beyond that. He is spirit, not a physical form. Verse 25, not only is he the creator, he's also the sustainer of all that he has created. In other words, he is holding it all together. If he were to release it for one moment, everything would cease to exist. He holds together the universe by his power. He is the sustainer and he is the source. He is the fountain of life and breath and everything. You would never imagine filling up a a gas container, taking one of your gas containers from home and taking it to the gas station and say, here, do you need this? Maybe, Maybe you could use a little fuel. No, they're the source. They're where you get it from. And in the same way, God is the source of life and breath and everything. So it's not as if somehow we could give to God more life than he has or anything that he doesn't have. He couldn't possibly, therefore, be served by human hands as if he needed anything from them. And therefore, Paul, in his proclamation of the one true God, with all these idols around him, is... Preaching a God which is totally foreign to their ears. All of these gods need to be served in some way by human hands. They are uh, in some sort of uh, house or temple made by human hands. They are not the creator gods. They are kind of lesser so-called gods. In verse 26, notice Paul narrows down God's creative activity to humanity. He made every nation of mankind from one man. That's the special creation of Adam. And notice he declares God to be sovereign. That is, over all. He is the one who determines the place and time, the place in time and space in which humans live. He made every nation of mankind from one man and placed them where he wanted them to be and in the time that he wanted them to be. and Why did he do this in verse 27? God created them and put them in their particular times and places in order that they should seek him, an interesting way of putting it, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul, notice all the attributes that Paul is, is proclaiming in this sermon. He proclaims God's transcendence, that is, his above it allness. He proclaims God's independence, his self sufficiency, his sovereignty, and yet at the same time, he declares his eminence, that means his closeness. That is, he is actually not far from each one of us. It sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? You have this majestic, sovereign being who is over all, who cannot be served by human hands, who's sovereign over all, created all things, he is sustainer of all things, and yet he is very close to each one of us. Maybe you've had a certain conception of God. Maybe it's been similar to how I've imagined him at times in my life, as being a far off and distant God. Maybe you picture just a, a cloud of some sort, or maybe you picture some being who's kind of hovering over the earth and he's kind of navigating, working on things with his little tools, maybe even bigger. He's, he's over all the universe and he's just kind of out there. He's, he's out there far, far away. He is so distant. I think that is, that is helpful in a sense, but we should not forget how close God is To you and to me and everything in this world. It is is an insufficient picture of God to think Him only as out there distant. He is very close to every one of us. This is what Paul says in his sermon. The reason, verse 28, God is not far from each one of us, Paul quotes, perhaps a philosopher of the day, is that in Him, we live and move and have our being. This is how close God is to you. You live because He's close to you. He's sustaining you. He's giving you every good thing that you have received. That means God, the fountain of life, is sustaining every one of us and everyone you know and everything that you've ever seen or heard of, even if people realize it or not. Paul quotes someone else by saying that we are God's offspring. Now by this, he means that we are his children by virtue of creation. It doesn't mean that we have been uh, redeemed or saved. It means that we have been created by him. He is, in a sense, the father of all whom he has created. We've been made in his image. And Paul reasons, since we are his children, full of life and breath, then we ought to realize that God is not like those idols of gold and silver and stone, something lifeless. No, we reflect something of His image in our life. He he is living. He is the source of life. He is what it means to exist, truly. And then in verse 30, that's where Paul makes kind of an evangelistic uh, turn. He, He makes this challenge to the people who are hearing him. God has been patient and overlooked sin. He's he's speaking of of them. He's he's preaching this unknown God. That might have been offensive. God has overlooked sin because of ignorance. But now there's no more ignorance. I'm proclaiming to you the one true God. Notice the extent and the universal application of God's command. Who should repent? All people Everywhere must repent. Our English teachers didn't like it when we gave a book report and we said, who should read this book? Everyone should read this book. Well, Paul here, he means it. Everybody, everywhere, no matter where they are in time, no matter where they are in space, all people everywhere must repent. Verse 31, why must they repent? Because there is a day which is coming when He will judge the world in righteousness. And the standard of his judgment, the means by which he will judge is by the one whom he has raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. It all hinges on this one person, Jesus Christ. Not whether you think he's a good person or whether you're trying your best to follow his example and be good like he was good, but placing your faith in him to save you. Coming to an end of yourself and repenting. That means changing your mind about what sin is and who God is and coming humbly before Him and saying, You are my life if I'm going to live. Resting in His care for you. For He lived the perfect life, died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead. That's the... Verse-by-verse verse explanation of this passage. And now we're going to circle back and consider in verses 24 and 25 what, what the assayity of God is, what this, this attribute of God is. It is the self-existence of God. His self-sufficiency, you see that? We've read it twice already, verses 24 and 25. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It means he, God is self-sufficient in Himself. Complete, the complete independence of God. And the word aseity is, is from a Latin word. I don't know Latin, so I just read it from a book but it means basically from himselfness his his from himselfness he is what it means to exist he gets life from no other being he in and of himself is what it means to be in existence god is independent of all external dependence god in other words doesn't need anything john five twenty six. the father has life in himself Therefore, God is not in need of His creation. He's not in need, need of a house to live in. He's not in need of service. God has everything He needs in Himself. He always has from all of eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Consider passages from the uh, book of exodus even the name of god in in some ways kind of refers to this self-existence this self-sufficiency this freedom of god to be and to do what he wills exodus three fourteen, when god reveals himself to moses in the burning bush he says who moses says who should i tell them is sending me and god says i am i am who i am Later in reference to his name in Exodus 33, 19, he reveals himself in a sense to Moses and he speaks of this freedom of his own existence and willingness to do what he wants to do. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He is independent, free to do as he wishes. He is free from outside dependence. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans 11. Verses 35 and 36. Just the next book over after Acts. Romans 11, 35 and 36. He's speaking of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift To him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See that all things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him. Paul is wanting to establish the sovereignty and independence, the self-sufficiency of God. And because of these things, because his ways are unsearchable, because nobody can counsel him or, or give him a gift that he has to repay them, to him be glory forever and ever. To him be glory. Only. We'll come back to that in a moment. But consider for a, a moment what why does it matter? So what? God is, he's self-sufficient in himself. What implications come from that? Well, first, how we view God is changed dramatically depending on if we see Him in this way or not. We, th- this helps us have a really big picture of who God is. Not, not forming God in our image, but receiving Him and understanding Him as who He is, as, has implications for His being. In other words, if God were in need then it means he lacked something at some point in time. If God is in need, it means he lacks something that we, we can give to him to help fill up, as it were, who he is. Well, it also has implications for his plan. God has a plan to save his people from their sins. But if his plan is dependent on someone or something else, how can we be sure that it will be fulfilled? Years ago, I came across a book called Getting Things Done by David Allen. Some of you have probably heard of that. It's a productivity book, how to get things done. And he has different buckets, categories for you to place to-dos in. Some of them are actions. These are things you got to do right away. Some of them are reference. Well, there's one bucket that is waiting, waiting on. Those are the things that you have to do, but you need somebody else to do something first. And so then that means you've got to get on their case, let them know, you need to do this so I can do what I've got to do. Waiting on. Well, does God have some sort of waiting on bucket for his plan? Is he waiting on the right person to rise up so that he can really a- accomplish his plan? I remember years ago hearing a man talk about Paul in that way. That Paul, God really needed Paul. He really, he really needed to turn him around and convert him because after that, things for his plan really took off. No, you've got it completely backwards. God was in control the whole time. He's the one that changed Paul and decided to use him. He did not need Paul. If God were not self-sufficient, if he needed something, if he was waiting on someone, then we could not trust God for his promises. We, didn't know, we wouldn't know if he could fulfill them or not. It also has implications for his glory. Since God alone is the independent one, he alone deserves worship. He alone is worthy of worship. It's important to understand here too though, he doesn't need it. <laughs> He's not, his self-esteem is not boosted when we sing his praises. He's not built up and he doesn't get the warm fuzzies because we're we're fulfilling something that he lacks. He is worthy of worship. Why then does he command that we give him glory? Why does he command, worship me alone? C.S. Lewis talks about the Greater Catech- Westminster Greater Catechism, and how it says man's chief end, man's chief purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. He says those two things are the same thing, ultimately. Fully to enjoy God, he says, is to glorify Him. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. Our ultimate joy is found in worshiping and enjoying, glorifying God. That is why He commands us to worship Him. Not because it fills up something lacking in Him, but because it fills up everything that's lacking in us. To worship the one true God. This is why you were created. This also has implications for us. How we understand ourselves. We are created beings. We are limited. We are not self sufficient ultimately. We are dependent beings. We do not have life in ourselves. We must derive it from somewhere else. We are in need. So we should ask ourselves where then do we find fulfillment for what we need? Do we find our ultimate fulfillment and joy in created things or in the self sustaining Creator, the source of life and breath? Everything. Some have argued that God's aseity makes him less personal. Since he is self sufficient, independent, maybe it makes him too transcendent. He's too big, he's too out there, he's too distant from us. But consider it is his very transcendence which makes his eminence, his closeness, all the more glorious. It is his above it allness that makes his closeness to us so amazing. Maybe that's some of what's going on when we have celebrity sightings. Have you ever seen somebody famous out at the airport or at a conference? I've only seen a couple people. You probably don't even know them. Eric Montross, Hubert Davis, not ringing any Carolina basketball players. They played in the NBA. That's as far as I've gotten. I was a celebrity sighting one time. In the streets of New York City, somebody asked me if I was Andre Agassi. And I, I signed their autograph. No, I didn't sign their autograph. <laughs> but consider what is, it, what is it that makes celebrity sightings so exciting. You, 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 you build these people up. You put them on a pedestal. They're so amazing at what they do. They're on the TV. Millions of people watch them. And then you see them right there, and you want a picture with them. You want their autograph. They're so close. It's so amazing. But they are not celebrities without us. God is God without us. This is what one theologian says. The God who is God without us has nevertheless determined to be God with us. Emmanuel, this transcendent God has come down to be with us, not because he needed us, but out of his free mercy and grace. And we see this in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ who was born who lived the perfect life, who died and suffered on the cross for sinners, who rose from the dead, who indwells his people with his spirit to be with us and in us forever. And this is the glorious thing that we get to celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. God with his people.